Hello and welcome, one and all, to the latest episode of the Global in the Granite State, a podcast of the World Affairs Council of New Hampshire. As always, I am Tim Horgan, your host and executive director of the Council. Thank you to all of our returning listeners who have helped to push this engaging series forward, as well as to our new listeners for joining our global community. It is because of your interest and support that we are able to continue in-depth discussions on global issues that matter. Help us to outline our future episodes by dropping a comment wherever you listen and letting us know the issues that are important to you. Today, we are focusing on the U.S.-China relationship, which has been growing more tense over the past several years. Our speaker wants to show that there is the possibility to reset our relations and approach China from what he terms as a policy based in reality. Let's jump right in. My primary intention was to create a report that the average person, and what I mean by the average person is really average person, though I suspect the people who will read it are the ones who read, listen to the media, remain engaged, think about these issues. So that's the primary audience. Many of our longtime listeners may recognize our expert for today, Sawar Kashmiri. Sawar joined us last year to talk about the Belt and Road Initiative giving insights into the goals and objectives of the Chinese Communist Party in terms of building infrastructure around the world. Sawar is the host of Polaris Live, a video podcast series focused on U.S.-China policy, as well as a fellow at the Foreign Policy Association. He is also an applied research fellow of the Peace and War Center of Norwich University in Vermont. It's not the expert, it's not the military people, It's just the average person who hears every day, gee, China's running away with the marbles. China is this, China's that. Because to take a fresh policy for China, the United States needs to move it through Congress, get the support of the average person. So that was my intention, is to aim it at people who were not experts. The report that he authored, called The Telegram, A China Agenda for President Biden, which was released on July 19th through the Foreign Policy Association, aimed to provide a clear and realistic view of China's power and what policy steps the U.S. government should take to create the best outcome for the country. This is not only the views of Sawar himself, but is drawn from his years researching and talking with high-level officials to build the basis for this report. So the Foreign Policy Association, following up on my book, which talked, as you know, about the Belt and Road Initiative and what it was and why it was so important. An argument uh, that people got out of the book was, so why aren't we thinking about these things? And so the charge I had from the Foreign Policy Association was, can you write a report that explains very succinctly what is the reality today in the way I look at it and in the way I present it, and then In Polaris Live, which is my video podcast program where we interview people on China-America relations from around the world, the second part of the FPA's request was, 
what are these people? They said, you are getting some very high-ranking people from China, Singapore, Hong Kong, Europe to talk about the situation. What are they saying? So I had 19 interviews with senior ranking people. And the last question I posed to them was, okay, so if you find yourself alone with President Biden, what advice would you give him? to improve China-US relations and thaw this daggers drawn uh, situation with China. And so an entire section of this report is high level recommendations from these people. And by the way, as you know by now, you've seen the report that if someone wants to go in and listen to the entire interview, uh, there's a link on the uh, electronic version of the report and the printed version of the report. I've put a link to where you can read the electronic version of this report in the show description for this episode. It is certainly worth the read. It was interesting to note that in one of the press releases about the report put out by the Foreign Policy Association, the headline read something to the extent of, the U.S. no longer holds a military advantage over China. This view surprised me, as we know that the U.S. spends a lot more on its military than anyone else. So I wanted to dive a little deeper into this idea. Well, I think, first of all, as you've said, the release of the report has, in fact, surprised a lot of people. Though I will tell you that the surprise is not as much in military circles as it is on civilian circles. One of the first replies I got to the press release that was sent out was from a very senior intelligence official in the military. She, by the way, said very simply, I love it. So the military is quite aware of this because numerous war games, you may know the military is very fond, most militaries are very fond of war games. They simulate what may happen with this or that. And on the Indo-Pacific, South China Sea, most of the war games, military, uh, in fact, the United States loses. So they're well aware of the situation. The reason for it is very simple. Uh, China has taken their defense budget, it's a third of ours, and they've plowed it all to making their uh, shores inviolable. That's where all their rockets, missiles, everything goes. Should the average American be worried about it? No, because the reason for this report, primarily the reason for this report is that U.S. policy on China is not based on today's reality, that we need to correct that. And so becoming aware of the military situation, there are the reasons with the military situation, I think will give the average American a reason to think differently. If the point of the report is to help Americans think differently about our relationship to China, then what are some of the key takeaways that Sawar would like to have readers of the report and listeners of this podcast have? Well, what I hope the takeaway is that one, this business of stopping China ain't going to happen. The only way that China can be stopped is by China, if they screw up. The second message I would like for people to take away is that neither the history nor what we know about Chinese geopolitical objectives at this point talk about China invading other countries, China trying to push its authoritarian ideology forcibly in other countries to so if you add those two together, right, and the fact that China is in some measures already the biggest economy in the world, they dominate the military space around their shore, that if you put that together, 
here we have for the first time a power that is as rich as, as powerful as in their own space, is as advanced technologically as the United States. And that has never happened before. And therefore, we ought not to be thinking about how to stop them, how to fight them. The 21st century is going to be denominated by these two powers and how they deal with one another. So how is the United States going to recraft the policy we have right now of hostility competing with China? That's what I hope people are going to focus on and hopefully take us on a tack that is different from the one that we are on now. The path we are on now is one where many people see future conflict with China as inevitable. Many see this as a new Cold War between the two countries, similar to Russia and the US after World War II. Is war with China inevitable? Can and should this outcome be avoided? Well, my first thought is that if we do descend into a war, then we won't have to worry about anything because we have two nuclear powers that are going to destroy the world. So if that happens, then, you know, we won't be able to do another podcast. There won't be anybody to listen to it and so on. So that's the first point I want to make. The second point is that there is no inevitability on that. One of the people I talked to was Yan Jutong, who's a very famous academic, uh, but also a consultant for the Chinese Communist Party. And he told me that we should never use the word Cold War again. He said, that is not the way to describe the situation between China and America. He said, because every time you ask somebody, they define Cold War between China and America in a different way. My own reason for not using it is Russia never achieved the greatness of uh, China, was never rich enough, was not an industrial power. The trade we do in one day with China in the best year uh, with Russia was, was lower than the trade we do in one day. So there's not an inevitability of war, but we need to face reality. We can't go around saying tariffs and this is and that's is, and we are going to send our military there, we are going to pivot, you know, and so on. So we need some reality. And I go back to how this report started and the basic premise is, let's craft US foreign policy based on reality today, not how we'd like it to be. Then what is the reality of the situation that we find ourselves in? You may be feeling, as I did, that there's nothing to be done, and we should just resign ourselves to having China surpass the United States as a superpower. However, that is not what the report bears out. Let's take China first. If you go back 3,000, 4,000 years in the history of China, it has always been the largest economy, the most productive economy in the world, excepting for 125 or so years when China was colonized, brutalized. It was their nightmare. They call it the century of humiliation. It drives their foreign policy. So that's where China is today. They're confident, they're rich, they're powerful in their own space, right? And so we need to recognize that. But by the same token, the United States is not going anywhere. We are a continental economy, a very large economy. We have huge strengths. If you think about it, we have the universities, the efficient allocation of capital, uh, powerful markets. And if I may say so, and this is a quote from the former foreign minister of Singapore, but I have to use it, perhaps our greatest strength 
is that the United States control the world for talent. Uh, January, we send this mission to Mars, right? And we had this helicopter flying for the first time in Martian space. And when you looked at the uh, control room, NASA control room, the woman who headed up this project was from Myanmar. There were people from Africa. It was like the United Nations in the NASA control room. Right now you switch to uh, the uh, equivalent of NASA in China and they show their control room. What do you see? All Chinese. So China can draw on a billion or so people in China. The United States control over 7 billion people for its talents. That's a huge strength. We ought to be leveraging our strengths and especially this strength. So that's some of the idea of what reality is today, both on the Chinese side and the American side. As the Biden administration has continued through the first year of their term, many of the Trump administration policies towards China have remained in place, while a number of them have actually been strengthened by bringing together multilateral support. There are many reports out there that state the Biden administration will be even tougher for China to deal with as they will marshal international partners in a way that previous administrations did not. I should tell you, first of all, Tim, that I really believe in what Mr. Biden is doing, right? Because the United States is in a very precarious situation, as you've no doubt heard last month, that General Milley, the chairman of Joint Chiefs of Staff, was worried, disturbed, that the previous president was going to stage a coup d'etat, that this was a Reichstag moment where he would ask for help from the military to remain in power. Now, even if 1% of what the general felt is true, we're in a very precarious position in the United States. So I applaud Mr. Biden for focusing on the United States, continuing on the policies with China until he pushes the agenda for the American people. However, it would seem that there are areas where the two countries should drop the harsh rhetoric and work together, according to Sawar. China has the biggest infrastructure project in history that is now taking place, the so-called Belt and Road Initiative, where over a trillion dollars worth of infrastructure is being built, because China has the most technologically advanced in infrastructure uh, qualifications. One of the first recommendations I make is that the United States should put aside these small differences and focus on its infrastructure by joining China's Belt and Road Initiative. This is a very, very provocative statement, but let me throw some numbers at you and at your readers. So Mr. Biden has asked for $1.3 trillion to build infrastructure. It's not certain that he's going to get that over 10 years, 1.3 trillion. Experts in the United States estimate our infrastructure is in such horrible shape that it'll take roughly $3 trillion a year for 10 years. Now I'll repeat that, $3 trillion a year for 10 years to repair the infrastructure and bring it up to speed. Big difference between the two. Meanwhile, Wall Street has raised a lot of funds, infrastructure funds, which are not going anywhere. So why not combine China's technology, some China money, if that is practical, Wall Street money, American workers, and speed up the construction of American infrastructure? 
I mean, we are hurting. We are hurting. Our business is hurting because of the infrastructure and so on. And by the way, this is not a very strange idea. What most people don't know is when Boston started to replace its commuter cars a few years ago, in a global tender, it picked a Chinese company that does a lot of work for BRI in other countries. The rail cars that are rolling in Boston now are made by a BRI company. Virginia, the port of Virginia, three years ago, as you know, most of the world's commerce is carried in containers. And these container ships that are being built now carry 20,000 containers on each ship. They're stacked 14 stories tall. So the port in Virginia wasn't big enough to handle these. And so the customers said, hey, listen, if you guys can't handle it, we're going to go to another port, maybe in Canada, maybe in other places in America. Guess what? The only people who make computerized gantry cranes to handle this are Chinese engineering companies. So the port of Virginia signed a contract with, uh, with the Chinese firm that does a lot of port construction for the Belt and Road Initiative and said, we need six of these. How quickly can you ship them to us? And they said, well, it'll take a few months or we get them to you. Then Mr. Trump stepped in and said, hey, you're buying cranes from China. We're going to impose taxes, tariffs, you know, and so duties. And, and the port of Virginia said, okay, then I guess we give up our business uh, to other ports. And the, the Trump administration actually very wisely backed off. And I have a picture, you've probably seen it in my report of this barge with six Chinese cranes coming into the port of Virginia. So if it wasn't for politics, China and America could rightly say that, hey, we're part of the Belt and Road Initiative. So what I'm saying is let's accept the inevitable, get into it in a big way, big way get our infrastructure done so that we can then compete with people on an equal standing. So that's the first big recommendation that I make personally. And the second one I make is that in the Cold War, we used to have the Strategic Air Command, bombers ready to go at a moment's notice and hit Russia if they ever hit us. So I'm suggesting we have a Strategic Pandemic Command. The two richest countries in the world, China and America, set up something where we can pump money, pump vaccines, pump research, ready to go wherever there's a, a pandemic that, uh, that lets loose. Just to give you a feeling for my thinking is that we should let the small issues be on the side, focus on the big ones, and that will lead us to the thaw that we need. But why would the U.S. want to get involved with supporting China's efforts around the world and help make them even more of a peer competitor? I'll give you two reasons. I compare the competition between China and America. It shouldn't be what it is now. It should be like a soccer team, two soccer teams. You know, that deadly competition, right? Italian and English teams and so on. Well, what does that competition do? It makes each team stronger, right? So that's what I believe the competition should be. The second part of your question is, we can't do anything to make them stronger. They're on that trajectory. Only they can stop that. So there is nothing the United States can do to stop them in going on their trajectory to be the equal of the United States. Neither can they do anything to stop the United States. So that's a wash. I would not want to think about that. Right? 
There is another argument where the world China is really going to grow. You know, they have demographic problems. Again, my thought is, why are we worried about what their problems are? You know, we need to worry about what our problems are. So that's my thinking on this. If we shouldn't be worried about the successes or challenges for China, should we even be worried about engaging in the world? Can't we just pack up, go home, deal with our own issues, and leave the rest of the world to figure it out on their own? The U.S. has to be engaged in the world. One of the biggest mistakes that the United States made was to walk out of the Trans-Pacific Partnership, which was a partnership that engaged numerous countries in Asia, Latin America, and of course the United States. Uh, we walked out of that. So China has now taken over the leadership of that. That's the kind of engagement that we ought to build. What we ought not to do is engage in all these military bases and expenditures, uh, leaving aside the money part of it, it just causes people to not like the United States, right? The United States has 600 military bases around the world, 600, think about that. How many does the China have? Zero. They have one small place in Djibouti at the Horn of Africa, which is actually tiny, uh, presence uh, of the United States and Japan and Australia and so on. Why do we need 600 bases? Why do we need this military engagement, right? Uh, the military is the most highly trained in the world and they're superb. As you know, I do a lot of work and speak to uh, people in the military. Why hasn't the United States won a war since the Second World War? Not because of the military, We've spent trillions of dollars, and what have we achieved? Creating hate around the world, right? People point to Xinjiang, right? In China, China has got almost a million people behind these concentration camps, they call them. Well, I mean, against all good advice, the United States went into Iraq, the civilian deaths there are almost a million, right? Who gets hurt with that? The United States gets hurt with that. We need to be engaged with the world. We need to lead the world or try to lead it, but we ought not to do it in the military way that we are doing now. So that's my answer. Got to remain engaged, plugged into the world. Thinking about military engagement, the Strait of Taiwan has become increasingly militarized, with China sending planes, ships, and drones across the Strait in increasing numbers. Many people see what has happened in Hong Kong as a precursor to the eventual invasion of Taiwan and the destruction of the democracy there. As one of the hottest policy issues in the U.S.-China relationship, should the U.S. increase, decrease, or maintain the status quo when it comes to relations with Taiwan? I used to be a businessman, so I speak in very frank, forthright, simple terms. My feeling is that if the United States pushes Taiwan's independence, that if the United States continues to arm Taiwan, that if Taiwan starts to increasingly talk about independence, I think China will invade and China will take uh, Taiwan by force. That's my feeling. Same things happened in Hong Kong. There are things that happened there which uh, Hong Kong leadership ought not to have done. I'm not justifying any country taking over any, but think of what happened when Russia put uh, nuclear missiles in Cuba. We, could, we would not take that. In a Caribbean nation, if China was to come in and set up a naval base in a Caribbean station, do you think the United States would stand for that? No. Uh, and I think that's what I believe will happen to Taiwan. 
exactly what's happened to Hong Kong. Uh, I think we ought to just continue on this path uh, that President Nixon, President Reagan charted with his, uh, hey, there's one China, but please don't take that China by force. Otherwise, you will get us all, all ticked off. That's my answer. If it were to come to an invasion of Taiwan, Sawar does not see the prospects as good in terms of the United States' ability to prevent it. I don't think so. I think it would be over fairly quickly. Uh, Taiwan won't be an easy take, but it is a few hundred miles from China. The state of the military strength of China right now is that an American naval force, including our massive carriers, right, which is how we project our power in the uh, in the Pacific with these nuclear-powered attack carriers, they cannot, in times of conflict, operate within a thousand kilometers of China. They'll be sunk. So this little that America can do if there's a war, most people recognize that. So we ought not to uh, live in a non-real world, right? Unfortunately, you know, there are small countries and large countries. And there's an old saying, I forget by whom, that large countries do what they want and the smaller countries have to live with it. If you want to dive even deeper into the recommendations that Sawar has outlined for the Biden administration, you can read his full report at fpa.org. Simply follow the link in the episode description to download the report for free. You can also stay up to date on the most important China policy updates by following Sawar's Polaris Live video podcast series, interviewing some of the top China experts from around the world. Thank you again for taking the time to listen to this important discussion. I hope that you learned something and that you will think hard on whether or not the U.S. needs to approach China in a different way. Let us know your thoughts and questions in the comment section. Our host, producer, creative director, audio technician director, and all-around good guy is Tim Horgan. Our theme music is Admin by A.A. Alto, and our episode music is Crunchy Funk by Mr. Smith. Can't wait to see what next month has in store for the United States and the world.